G'day everyone, welcome to Life in the Peloton, which is brought to you by Rafa, our proud partner. I'm Mitch Docker, and we've got another great episode coming up for you this week, Chris Froome. But I want to quickly talk about the RCC, because this is something that I just didn't quite understand until I guess about a year ago when I came back to Australia and I started working on the ground with Rafa here in Melbourne. Just understanding the RCC, the Rafa Cycling Club. To be honest with you, I didn't really know what the point was. Why would you sign up to this club? What were the benefits? Was it just about getting a free coffee or, you know, some exclusive kit? But actually, it didn't take me long once I was down on the ground in Melbourne to understand how good this is, how cool this little community is, and how great it is for all the members who are part of it. Let's hear from one of the earlier members, David Murray, to hear why he loves being in the RCC. David Murray, I've got a question for you. What... RCC member number are you? Um, Number 4648. Now, tell me, because you know that off the top of your head, you're very beginning of the RCC. What's your experience of being a Rafa Cycling Club member? And why did you become a club member? Um, My experience, I suppose it revolves back to the Tour de France because I knew they were going to be looking after us on a tap to tour. I heard that they were going to give us massages and I thought, wow, after a hard stage, a massage would be great. But when I got there, there was people from all over the world and it was an international club and I made friends. I was, and then I used to go back every year and I'd see the same people, but there was more and more people came every year and I got to meet people. And so I could go anywhere in the world and I'd be with these guys. I just send them a message going, I'm going to be in your town. Do you want to hook up for a ride? The RCC was quite... It was an amazing experience to get that. Yeah, I've been a backpacker all my life. I've met people everywhere, but this was different. This was a cycling group, and you all had the same thoughts. And it wasn't about the clothes. It was just about meeting people, and it was a great way to meet people. Well, Chris Froome, you heard me say it just before. He's the guest this week on the podcast. Does he need an introduction? Well, if you don't know who he is, I don't know where you've been. I'll give him a quick introduction. 16 years as a pro, he's ridden 21 Grand Tours, and he's won seven Grand Tours in total. Four Tour de France's, one Giro, and two Vuelta's. Born in Nairobi, Kenya, to British parents, and grew up there and South Africa before coming across to Europe to pursue his cycling career. I'm really not going to say much more than that, because the podcast speaks for itself, and I think Chris speaks for himself. It was really an absolute honour to sit down with a legend of the sport. You know, arguably the best Grand Tour rider ever. I think the best Grand Tour rider ever. What he's done in all the Grand Tours, not just the Tour, puts him right up there for me. Speaking about Grand Tours, one of the things that I struggled with in a Grand Tour was my gut health, actually. Because you're searching for that quick energy all the time, there's high sugar drinks, you know, those gels in the race, but outside of the race, you're just eating a lot of white food, pasta, rice, simple food that you can digest quickly to get that energy. My gut was in a bit of a distress by the time it came to the third week. Around the middle of my career, after listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast, I was introduced to Athletic Greens. I started taking on the race, AG1, which was really easy for me to get my greens in in the morning, and then I didn't have to worry about later in the day. Because as a pro, you don't really want to be eating a lot of raw foods in the middle of a Grand Tour. It just costs a little bit of extra energy to digest it. But you wouldn't believe it. We're trying to save in every part, every little bit of energy we can. 
So AG1 was perfect for me to get my greens in when I was on a grand tour. Simple, take a scoop in the morning, shake it up, bang, and I was ready to go. I'd walk down to breakfast and I was ready for the day, ready for the race. And it really did make a difference for me. Not only for my overall feeling, but especially for my gut health. I've actually kept that going since retiring as a pro, and it's something that I do every day in the morning. I scoop, shake it up, chuck a bit of ice in there, and I'm ready for the day to take on the day as well. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, The Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go across to athleticgreens.com slash life in the peloton. That's athleticgreens.com slash life in the peloton. Guys, I can't recommend this highly enough. It really gives me that little boost at the start of the day and sets me up for a great day. Now, like I was saying, it was just such an honor to sit down with Chris one-on-one and in person. And the way that this happened was through a mutual friend of ours, Quadlock. They set it up for us in Melbourne. We went down because I wanted to do this one in person. I know you can access everyone online, but for me, podcasting is more than that. It's about the connection. And Chris Froome, I wanted to speak to him in person. Quadlock set this up for us. It's a company that I've been working with the last six months, and I've really enjoyed working with them. Not only the on-bike stuff, but it's everything else for me. The stuff in the car, the quad lock on my bike, of course, on my pram, when I go running, it works everywhere. I've got my phone safely snapped away and ready to use whenever I need it. Not in my hand, not distracting me when I'm driving, and especially when I'm running, strapped on my arm, and I can listen to podcasts as I go along. Guys, this is a really, really good episode. Like I said, even better that I got to sit down and talk to him in person. So without further ado, I'm going to bring you Chris Froome. I hope you enjoy. All right, we're down here at the headquarters of Quadlock in Melbourne. Chris, you're an ambassador. How good is it to be in Melbourne to see where it all happens? Yeah, uh, amazing opportunity to to get down here. I've been, it's obviously Quadlock's a product I've used for, for a number of years. I've always had the piss taken out of me for, for staring at my stem. Um, and now <laughs> now that I can at least put my phone there, I've got I've got an excuse. Uh, yeah. Just looking at my phone, not, not looking at the stem. But no, um, yeah, Quadlock's a, a, a product I genuinely believe in. Um, I, I, I hate having crap kicking around in my po- pockets and uh, it's nice just to offload it put it on the stem and i think from a safety point of view as well it's it's uh you're not having to reach back the whole time and you've got everything right there in front of you and uh, clean and secure and well chris Froome, if you guys didn't know is in his 16th year pro 21 grand tours seven grand tour wins four tour de france's one giro two for welters i want to start at my f- favorite point of your career i think and I think in history, it's one of the best rides in history. I'm talking about stage 19, 2018 Giro. I was there. I was on the other end. So I got to feel the full wrath of what happened by trying to stay in the race. I'm going to run you through the situation so everyone knows what we're talking about. Simon Yates from the UK had been dominating the race, winning two stages and holding the leader's jersey from stage five. It was a significant tour for Chris. Coming in as a favorite off winning the tour and the Vuelta the year before, you also announced you wanted to attempt to complete the Giro Tour double. But you had a crash right before the race in the prologue warming up. I remember this in Israel. It was quite sketchy and there was a a tight corner where you went down. I remember someone said, oh, Froome went down on that corner. I was like, oh, I almost did. And I was just rolling around. The race wasn't going well for you from the start. You lost some time in the early stages, but you won and took time back 
on, if not the hardest climb in Europe, arguably the hardest climb in Europe, I would say, the Zonkalan climb, Mont Zonkalan. But the following day, you almost seemingly cracked, it looks like, and you lost a bit of time back to the GC contenders, which was sort of unexpected after that victory. But coming into the Queen stage, stage 19, you were 4 minutes 50 down, which is sort of decent from Yates and the Michael Rosa. Stage 19 was an absolute doozy, doozy of a stage. It was an absolute spectacle. The famous Calder Fenestra was in it. 185k stage, 5,200 metres of climbing um, with, you know, the Calder Fenestra, 18k alone, 9% average, and half of it was on gravel. Fermi, you got to take us to this day. Like I said, I was at the back just trying to make it through the stage because you were just going that quick putting guys out of the timeline so i think yeah i mean it was good good that you painted the picture there because you have to understand the full story to to actually get in in my mind as well and see where where i was coming coming from because i think as a team we'd earmark that stage as okay we're gonna go really go for it and then try and move me up the gc initial plan from the team was um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna ride hard all day. Um, really isolate uh, the the other race leaders, Dumoulin and Yates, and on the final climb, I'll try and try and get some time on them. And I remember uh, just chatting to chatting to my wife on the way to the start, just a few messages back and forth. And I don't know how it came up, but it was why are you waiting to the last climb to basically shake really try and take time on them. And just made so it, it is it's as if the penny dropped. It was like, hold on a second, we've got one of the longest, hardest climbs right in the middle of the race, but still 80Ks to the finish. No one would be ready for a full on assault mm. at that point in the race. And I just started getting excited thinking about it. I was just like, this is it. This is, this is game on. You're nuts. Um, getting excited. Absolutely <laughs> nuts. And um, then, then I started. I, I went to, I think it was, uh, I went to Nico, Nico Portal, the, the DS, flew it past him and I could see his eyes light up as well. I was just like, <laughs> ooh, this is catching here. This is kind of, we're, we're getting this going here. Yeah, right. And uh, pretty quickly uh, had a chat to the rest of the guys. And it's like, okay, we're going to do basically, uh, I'm going to use all my teammates uh, from the foot of the, the Fenestra until about halfway up where we hit the gravel. Mm. Um, use all of them basically in that period um, and basically just do like a, a lead out up up the climb as if it was the final climb make it that hard that the race is just in bits from that point and then the, the objective was to go solo uh, go alone and hope that it was just enough chaos behind that they wouldn't be able to organize a, a good chase it was crazy how things fell into place because we thought okay it's a pretty bold move and it could go completely the other way and yeah. I, I could just blow up and they'll they'll catch me on the next climb and I will have spent everything and that's me I'll probably race over from being five minutes down I end up 10 minutes down and yeah even further back on GC because the last climb the last climb was was a really tough climb to the finish like you said it was a, a climb you could have attacked on and got time if you're caught at the foot of that being out the front for the whole time you risk just going straight out the back there was a lot of sort of dragging downhill to the foot of the last climb. And if, if, if there was a proper chase behind and they caught me at the bottom of that, I, I would have lost even more time and that, that would have been it. But I was at this point where I'd won the tour of the year before, I'd won the Vuelta, kind of like, okay, now I'm going to really go for the Giro, try and win three in a row, which, which hasn't been done, I think, for, for a couple of decades. And I was just like, this is the only opportunity I can see left now. We're on stage 19 mm. of the race two days to go 
it's the only opportunity left where I'm I, I, I can try and pull this off I was like it's gonna take something bold like this to make it happen and I can just remember getting so excited going up the earlier slopes of of the Finestra and it was hard I mean my teammates were riding an uncomfortable pace and I could just see the body language of other guys in the peloton it's like still 100 k's to go like why are these guys riding so hard it makes no sense becomes psychological as well <laughs> it does. doesn't it, it if does. that was on the last climb people just hanging that bit longer but were you were you getting a little bit nervous at the pace they were setting or you were just so g'd up for it harder boys come yeah, on yeah I was, I was i was really g'd up i was loving it obviously if if you know what's coming yeah. you know what to expect and you can see other people like almost like scowling and frowning at you because like, oh, what are these guys doing? They're such idiots. I was yelling. So I was yelling from about 5k <laughs> behind. <laughs> and um, one by one, I could see uh, Dumoulin's teammates dropping off. And every time one of his teammates dropped off, I'd almost be like, okay, boys, a little bit yeah. later. Come on, let's yeah. go. Um, because I, I was thinking I, Yates was having a tough day. I could see he, he pulled off pretty early as well. Uh, so he was out of the picture and it was like, this is great. Dumoulin's only down to one or two teammates left. Um, what's going to happen now when, when I actually go for it and lift the pace even more? Uh, it's He's going to be alone. Um, and, and it turned out he was. But there, there were a few things that I couldn't have calculated that day uh, that, that fell in my favor. Stuff like, I think it was uh, Reitenbach. Okay. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, sorry. He was riding for FTJ, I think. And he was there and they wanted to keep him to, to pull on the on the flats and the, the the other bits of the because there were only I think four or five guys chasing me behind, so they they wanted to keep him there to to do the work. But then he was going pretty slowly on the downhill, so they they kept on waiting for him on the downhill. So on the downhills, I was just going hell for leather. Uh, I could see the the lead motorbike in front of me, and I was just trying to follow the lines of the motorbike and I, I, I just just going for it kind of thing. I can remember after each descent that I did had come out another 45 seconds up and I was just like wow it was almost like free yeah, yeah so I started off I'd be like I managed to get a minute by the top of the finestra or whatever it was and then got down the descent and it was like 1 minute 45 I was like yeah, that's, nice. that's cool and I was like okay uh, I've got another 3-4 minutes I need to get let me just just keep just go into time trial zone basically and ride as hard as I can and I kind of figured that behind they'd be playing a little bit of you chase, you chase, you pull, you pull. And I think that that just worked in my favor. Um, no one really had teammates there. And um, yeah, it was it was really um, so many things had to come together for it to work out. And it was, it just happened to be my day, I guess. It was just, and still the one, because it was, as I said, it was already an epic day. It was already an epic Giro. The Giro is typically epic. And that ride just capped everything off. Uh, as it was going, uh, obviously you had the Zonglan um, victory there, but there was some questions, you know, Froomey's a bit off this one and it just got flipped. And you just flipped the cards right at that moment. Um, so, I mean, what was really happening with me was that, that crash in Jerusalem on the prologue course. Um, there are some crashes that you, you get up from, it's just a bit of road rash, you kind of just shake it off and you get on with it. I don't know what it was with that crash. I, I just, I was, I was hurt. Uh, I just felt I couldn't pedal properly. I felt as if the, the pedal balance was completely off. I then, then my back started hurting and I, I just wasn't right after that crash. And uh, you were completely right in saying that first 10 days of the race, every time there was an opportunity to uh, basically for the GC guys to, to fight it out, I was, I was coming out second best. I was, I was losing time. I was, I was struggling to basically hold the pace, but 
after two weeks of racing, um, I think the body kind of mended itself somehow. I suddenly, I, I kind of felt, started to feel more myself again in that last week. And then was that Zonkaland stage, which is mythical in, in cycling. It's, it's def- I would definitely say it's one of the hardest climbs we would ever do. Yeah. I had a big target on that stage just because of, uh, I mean, it's in the in the category of kind of Vontu, Angliru, mm. those big, big, uh, big stages. That scary climb. Scary climb. And I was like, right, I want to add that one to my Palmeiras. And I, I can remember attacking on that climb as well. I was far off GCS. I was, I was like over five minutes behind behind the leaders. And I was just amazed at how Yates came after me that day. I was just like, the guy's leading the race. I'm five minutes back. He doesn't need to chase me so hard. And I, I emptied the tank. I absolutely went, I, I gave it like 110% that if you're, if you're riding a Grand Tour, you wouldn't normally go that deep on any one day because you've got to recover for the next day and think about tomorrow and the next day after that and whatever else. And that day, I, I didn't think about anything else. I literally just emptied the tank. But I, I couldn't believe that Yates was, he was so hot on my heels. I think I had a gap of like five seconds for like, four or five k or something it was literally like a drag race the two of us and it, he didn't give up right until the finish so um i managed to win that but i went so deep that the next day i had nothing and as you said i i i lost about another minute the next day it was but yeah i think they say that you're the best grand tour rider in our generation i think arguably the best grand tour rider there is because it's not just the tour that you've won it's the you know the vuelta I've been in a lot of those worlds with you. It's the, this Giro we're talking about. It's the different dynamics. Help everyone understand the difference between Grand Tours because it is diffi- difficult to understand. I've never ridden the Tour myself, so I can only assume what the Tour is like. I know the Giro, I know the Vuelta, but they're very different beasts. And you're someone who's conquered all three. And just what you spoke about then, about going up Songkhlaan, you're not just thinking about this moment, this hill. You're thinking about tomorrow, the next climb. You know, 100%. Yeah. 100%. You've always got the bigger picture in the back of your mind. Um, of course, you've got to take it one day at a time. Definitely, when you think of it as a as a three week race, it's pretty daunting. Yeah. Um, to think you've got to be racing at the front all the time for three weeks, but you you really do have to compartmentalize things. And I know it's cliche. Everyone says I'm just taking it one day at a time, but really in yeah. your mind, you kind of you do need to do that. But at the same time, you you're remembering that it's a stage race. And um, for me, anyway, I never really tried to. To go so deep and do so much damage that you you can't you can't back it up the next day, um, with exception of uh, Zonkalan or one or two special moments where you really have to pull it out, pull it out of the bag, and, and go for it. And then you, the differences between the three, you really prefer, say, you know, the tour. I know everyone speaks about that's most known, but was there a favourite, or is there a favourite so, terrain-wise for you? There was definitely a least favourite for me, and that was the Giro. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it was it was why I never actually targeted the Giro uh, up until 2018. Um, and I think the only thing that got me to do the Giro was the fact that I'd won the Tour the Vuelta, and then it was yeah, it, it was one I'd never won. Mm. Um, potentially cost me the Tour de France in 2018 because I went to the Tour de France after the Giro and uh, found out why not many people do the double. Um, I, I just didn't have the legs in the tour. Um, it was a particularly hard... Uh, you always want to say the one that you did, the last tour you did, was the hardest grand tour. And I feel like that one just sticks out for me as a really hard addition. It was rough. It was rough. I, I don't know if it's because I, I grew up in Africa as well, but I've always struggled with 
the colder colder climates and the Giro has always been known to to be uh, a race where you you get up above 2000 meters in May in in Italy uh you're above the snow line a lot of the time um I'm also asthmatic so I I and I find the cold mm. triggers triggers my chest a lot so it was the one I'd always tried to avoid but uh yeah one way or another I was, I was convinced to do it and I think especially starting in Israel, um, I, I thought, okay, it's going to be a bit warmer, at least for, for some of the race. And also the way the Giro is, there's there's a very subtle sort of nuance between the, the Grand Tours. The Giro is, uh, I mean, it's a brutal race. They're all brutal. The Giro almost feels as if it's a classics, uh, mm. a bunch of classics all strung together. Um, it's a bit more unexpected. Yeah, you can you can find these crazy attacks, guys attacking early on, or uh, being raced a little bit like a classic style race. Uh, whereas the Tour, for example, it's a bit more predictable. It's yeah. more controlled. You've got all the biggest teams, all the biggest names there. Uh, you're not going to sneak off the front as you as you could in in potentially the Giro, for example. I think that's the best description I've got of the Giro. It feels like that. Sometimes you've got, if anyone's interested in data, 400, 450 TSS days. That's not because of, it's a combination. It's the length of this epic stage. It's the way they race it. And outside of the race, it's like a classic too. You're driving a million miles as well. So you mentioned growing up in Africa. Um, I want to have a quick chat about that. Riding bikes in uh, in Kenya and growing up in Kenya. Help us understand what that was like. For me, that was really... I guess where my my love for the bike started, and it had nothing to do with racing. It had a bit to do with speed. I I I just enjoyed I enjoyed being on my bike as a kid. Um, and I think growing up thirty years ago, back in back in Kenya, my parents weren't really worried about. I mean, I, I was a five six year old, and the only the only rule I really had from my parents was be back when it gets dark. That that was all. I was six years old, uh, and otherwise I had a little bike, and I was. I could go where I wanted, go and meet who I wanted, go and see who I wanted. And, and safe to do was, that there? And it was safe back yeah. then. Um, I'm not so sure kids could do that now. Mm. Uh, you'd let your five-year-old out on the roads with cars this day and age. But um, yeah, that, that was that was how I grew up. And it was the bike for me was really just my independence. It was my way of getting around without asking mom or dad, please take me somewhere. Or yeah, I, I just loved spending time on my bike. I'd go and explore places that I'd never been before, go and find dirt dirt trails and jumps and all kinds of <laughs> things and that that's what cycling was to me and then only really when I went to I went to boarding school in in South Africa as a teenager and when I was down there uh, I was exposed to to road cycling yeah. for the first time and it was more of a sport down there every weekend there was another um race and event that you could as a amateur cyclist you could go and enter and you basically ride the fastest time you can um over 100 kilometers oh, yeah. and um it just became a weekly oh, that's what i'd do on weekends i'd go and enter these things and take part and found that as as actually i had a decent engine um i could keep up with with guys who'd been doing it for a few years and i was like oh this is cool well tell me a bit about it because i did hear also cycling was a nice little advantage being down at boarding school too because you had a little side business little side hustle going too tell me a bit about that i know he's told you that <laughs> yeah thanks imps um yeah i i, I think um because <laughs> i think the getting... reason why i want to say this is i think everyone assumes um and i i probably assumed this before i really met you in the bunch um you know Chris is this robot, he just, you know, looks at his computer, he sticks at his watch and he just trains and goes home and sleeps. But 
you're a fun guy and you're a bit of a you're a bit of a crazy guy outside too and i don't think a lot of people know this and this story for me sort of sums it up <laughs> so i think um yeah being being in the boarding house um of of of, of a boarding school um it was uh opportunity for me to obviously get out of school grounds and um you know what you know what guys are like i mean oh you're, you're leaving do you think you can stop past uh, the, the the tobacco shop and get me get 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 me a box of smokes and uh <laughs> oh there's a there's, there's a bottle store just around the corner uh, can you get me a bottle of that and i i, I did um i um I, I would fill my bidons with things that looked like water but didn't taste like water shove boxes of cigarettes up my jersey or whatever but and of, of course put a put a hundred percent commission on on anything i got um and uh managed to manage to buy my first uh racing bike with the proceeds of of basically anything anything i i i keep i kept the the boarding house uh topped up with brilliant um, tell me about going across to Europe, getting to Europe um, and the challenges of that, because I actually spent a little bit of time in the CMC UCI team um, and your name was quite famous there when I got there. It's a setup in, in Aigle in Switzerland to su- supporting um, countries that don't have a, a, a big um, federation to help guys come to Europe. I was lucky enough to get in there through a back door because the federation in Australia is quite good, but that's another story. Really cool setup and a really great opportunity Tell me about that little pathway and that opportunity, how that all came it about. Was, it was very, um, I was incredibly lucky, I guess, with my upbringing in, in Nairobi and Kenya. I'd, I'd always been born as a, as a Brit. I, I knew my family was British. I was a British kid growing up in Africa. But when I started riding in, in Kenya, Kenya had a very non-existent cycling scene. And the few cyclists who were there uh, very quickly had the opportunity to to represent Kenya if they were any good. Um, that was a clear pathway for me. The, the UCI had this program uh, where they would invite people from non-conventional cycling uh, backgrounds into Switzerland, basically provide them with a, a continental team set up and get them into all the under-23 uh, races that were basically w- would feed into the 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 pro scene it was a great like it was it was like a pro setup like it was better than my first team like the it was bikes, amazing the equipment nike it was amazing. kit look had, bikes you look bikes nike kit yeah uh, living in in switzerland uh it was, it was like a little sweet. sort of boarding house set up in switzerland yeah, it, it was, was interesting it was cool yeah um and um for me it was really i mean uh, at that point as a sort of in my late teens you can imagine i, I would have been sitting on the internet looking at all the all the continental teams out there and I would have been sending them all my CV which probably had nothing on it that they recognized mm. and I get very few replies but the uh, the UCI uh did did reach reach out to me and say yeah listen if you if you want to get to Europe this is this is an opportunity you can you can uh you can you can take and I um I came over to to Eagle um I think I spent about 6 months with them and the very first stage race I did was um, Giro di Regioni over in Italy. It went incredibly well for me. Um, I mean, it was, I, I knew I had this opportunity coming up to go and race in Europe. And I, I just trained my heart out all through the winter, I guess, when the Europeans were dodging bad weather. Um, I, was, I was back in Africa just training up a storm. Um, arrived in, in March, I think, did this Giro di Regioni. And... Um, First mountaintop finish, just rode away with uh, Simon Spilak, 
Oh, wow. Um, he he was sort of saying to me, oh, please, please don't drop me, please don't drop me. I thought, okay, I need friends here. So I, I didn't drop him, <laughs> kind of kept him with me to the finish. But then I followed the lead motorbike into the deviation <laughs> uh, around the last corner and uh, he, he got the win. Needless to say, two days later, there was another mountaintop finish. I, I didn't wait for anyone. I, I just went <laughs> went on my own. And that that I think that performance there got the attention of the Italian um, team owner, um, Claudio Corti of, of Barlow World. Mm. And uh, doors opened uh, for me to, to turn professional in, in 2008. Well, tell me about, I don't know exactly when, I couldn't find your exact, first professional win but I know it didn't happen exactly how you wanted it to that very first professional win came ever so close didn't quite get there what happened there um yeah that was uh another I, I feel as if this is almost <laughs> the, the theme of my career is I had to learn that learn the hard way and um coming into the I, I, I'd was it with Barlow World or Cornica Barlow World yeah. Barlow World I'd um I'd got into a breakaway of I think three or four guys um, in, in the final uh, 15k, I dropped, I jumped away from the other guys, and I was, I was coming in solo to the finish on my own. And the the motor, the lead motorbike that was with me, uh, sort of saw that I was kind of, I guess, really under the pump. I was pushing towards the line, and the guy said, "Take it easy, you've you've got it. Don't worry, stop." Because I kept on saying to him, "What's the time gap? What's the time gap?" And he said, "No, no, take it easy. You've got it. You've got it." Uh, <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, great, okay, I've got it. <laughs> I was rolling into the last few hundred meters, and uh, I think I was, I was going going to sort of zip up my jersey, and as I did that, guys just came flying oh, no. like, uh, for the sprint. And um, then I heard uh, yeah, guys crashing as well because I was in the middle of the road, and the lead out and the peloton was coming either side of me, and then guys started crashing. I think Daryl went down. Oh, gosh. Um, I... I got away with getting into big trouble with that one uh, because uh, thankfully Robbie Hunter won the sprint who was right. a teammate of mine uh, on Barlow World so it was still a team victory and I could uh, walk into the hotel not uh, <laughs> not about to get uh, blasted for, for, for messing it up but um, yeah a joke was on me that day. Well you were out here with Barlow World I actually didn't realize in the 2008 Herald Sun Tour I was in that race too um, we went up Mount Buller you had a great day on Mount Buller, um, and you pulled yourself back. You were second up Mount Buller, fourth overall. You probably don't remember. I couldn't even remember the stages. I was looking at it myself. I was like, where did we go that tour? So who who won that day? Do you remember? I did look at it. I forgot Nell. Okay. Um, I think it was a breakaway. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was a breakaway, and you went away and won from the won peloton. from the peloton. Oh, okay. Um, but following Barlow World, you, you caught the attention of Ron Ellingworth and you went across the sky in 2010. But 2011 was a bit of a breakthrough year, but it wasn't looking like a breakthrough year from what I understand. I've only just been reading about this, that you came to the Vuelta, a bit of a late call up. And even um, Brailsford, from what they were saying, they weren't even thinking about re-signing you. But you flipped it there because you, you ended up finishing second in that Vuelta becoming sort of a GC guy you came in there as support and from what I was saying you must have gained some belief like I could actually be here the team backed it as well they went we can't let this guy go Brailsford flew out made your side on the dotted line and they locked you yep. in so that was really I guess uh, a turning point in my career I mean I'd been professional uh, that was my fourth year professional 
and coming to the end of my contract at, at Team Sky, um, I'd, I'd had a few feelers out there and a few sort of, um, I guess, interest from other teams, but I, I didn't have anything solid at that point. And I missed out on the Tour de France selection. Um, and when, when I missed out on the Tour, I guess similar to coming over to Europe for the first time, I just sort of really knuckled down uh, through that summer, went up to altitude, just stayed up there for best part of a month. Um, and tra- trained up in Livigno to get ready for, for the Vuelta. Wasn't even sure that I'd get a spot in the Vuelta team. Um, I think I may have even missed the cut. Mm. And in, in the last week going into the Vuelta, one of the guys got sick. So I got the call up and it was really like, wow, this is this is now my moment. I'm, I'm ready for this. I feel as if I've, I've trained, I'm, I'm ready. They gave me the job of being uh, Bradley Wiggins uh, basically help him out as much as I, as far into the mountains as I could was, was my sort of job description in that race. Okay. It was really a sort of a, a light bulb moment for me because it was, I, I was riding with Bradley and riding in that sort of conservative way. I mean, he, he liked to ride at a very sort of steady speed, not jumping around, chasing attacks or anything, but almost like a time trialist, just ride within himself and, and be there on the climbs. And they gave me that job of Wherever Bradley goes, you go. You you follow him, and and when when the race gets to that pointy end, and he might need you to pull, that's when we want you to pull. I got into the mountains there, and it was one of the, one of the first mountain top finishes in in that race. I I kind of waited around Bradley, stayed close to him, and turned around at one point, and there were less than ten guys left in the peloton, and I remember them asking me, "Okay, Chris, now uh, yeah." Come on, your your turn to pull, mate. Set a set a steady tempo, and I can remember. Okay, get on the front. Started pulling, and um, a bit of crosswind up on a plateau. I pulled a little bit harder, turned around, and there's only like three, four guys left. And I was like, "Wow, how's this happened?" Yeah. I was just like, "This is this is incredible." Um, and I was like, "Hold on a second, if if I can do this, and there's only four guys left, why can't I be the guy like trying to?" trying to hang it out and, and stick it stick stick in there for GC as well. And it was really, I guess, where I, the first time in my career where I really started believing in myself Did you, as a as a contender. Were you f- nervous coming into that when they said, look, you know, you got to stick near Bradley, you got to get over these climbs. You're thinking, I don't know if I can do that. Like if the 10 guy's going to be left and this new, I guess almost new way of riding, which Sky sort of changed the way that, you know, maybe it's changed now, but yeah. I think for a long period it was a new way and a revolutionary way of doing the Tour de France. Um, did that somehow bit of a light bulb? Oh, this suits me if we ride a controlled pace. Or? So it, it definitely it de- definitely did suit me. But I think if I'm completely honest, um, in 2011, I had a lot of other stuff going on. Um, I had been battling with Bill Hartier, uh, which is a African, uh, well, not African. It's it's in Asia. It's in South America. It's a parasite uh, that you get in the water um, out in Africa. You can get it just by touching contaminated water. And at the beginning of 2011, um, I'd gone in for some medical checks because I I just thought something wasn't right. Um, And I'd flown back to, I think it was uh, Nairobi and had some medical checks in Kenya. And being in Kenya, that's one of the things they naturally check for. And it came back that I had pretty high levels of this stuff in my body and to indicate that it'd been there potentially for a few years um, and have just been building up basically in my system and it's a parasite that feeds 
on red blood cells and iron. And so as, a, as an endurance athlete, it's, it's the, worst thing, the worst thing you can imagine. Wow. And it, it sort of made sense why I'd, I'd do like, I'd have, I kept on having these, going through these periods of I'd build up for a few weeks, start feeling good. And I'd just get a little cold, little colds that would just stop me from progressing. I'd have to back off the training or whatever it was. And I found I just wasn't making progress through 2010, the earlier part of 2011, until I picked this up. Um, I took the the medication, which basically is just like, it just kills, kills all the parasites. And I just suddenly felt, I guess I, I felt like I was, I was doing training and then I was feeling better. I'd do more training, I'd feel even better. I was like, wow, I'm actually making progress here. And then when I missed out on the tour and I just did that massive training block up at altitude, I managed to shift some weight as well. I lost about two kilos. I was about two kilos lighter than I'd ever been before. Yeah. Um, and I was like, wow, I can actually, I can sustain. Uh, I didn't know I could get that light. Um, I'd gone down from racing at sort of close to 70 kilos down to about 68. And I just found once I got into that Vuelta and was given that job to to help Bradley there in the mountains, this just feels so easy. It was, well, why didn't I figure this out before? Like just just need to lose a little bit of weight and to have been healthy and um sounds simple but yeah of put, course we put, a, put a few few months of training back to back without having any issues and that was the result i got so it was it really was i guess the light bulb moment for me in 2011 really made me think uh, from that vuelta after that vuelta it was okay i, I obviously need a new contract now and but i want to be in a team where i can target the tour de france uh, next year like I've done this now in the Vuelta I've, I feel confident um, I've got an engine to, to race with these guys now I want to be able to try and do it at the biggest race at the Tour de France and that, that was where I guess it led into the 2012 saga at the Tour de France between myself and Bradley Wiggins because that was just my one condition to stay at Team Sky was that I got an opportunity in that mm. tour to race race for myself which I was promised at the time but then when I got there obviously Bradley there was a time trial before we got to the mountains Bradley went into the yellow jersey in the time trial. I was like, okay, mountains tomorrow. I'm going to have my sh- my shot now. But yeah, it didn't have a like that. No. 2012, you were second at the Tour de France, fourth at the Vuelta, 213, first at the Tour, 214, second at the Vuelta. I'm talking about the general classification here. 2015, first at the Tour de France, 216, first at the Tour de France, second at the Vuelta, 217, first at the Tour, first at the Vuelta. Did the Tour of Vuelta Vuelta double, the first person ever to do this since the Vuelta moved to the end of the year. And then you went on to win the Giro, which we spoke about at the start, and you got third at the Tour after that. Repeatability and managing expectations. This is something as pro sportsmen, um, whatever level, there is some kind of expectation. Once you do something, you're expected to do that again and more. And repeatability. It's a hard thing to master. I can't even imagine at that kind of level what that is. You know, doing my job was enough for me and that battle, everyone has it. Talk to me through about that and about, I guess, the team that you build around you to help, you know, handle that or to support you because this is this is something that we can just see from those results. I'm missing a whole lot of other results that you just have to be able to perform, repeat that session, but also manage that expectation through me. You've won the tour two or three times. What's next? What are you going to do? And you just got to be able to do your job. It's it's a tough one because I think winning winning a race like the Tour de France, I mean that that it's a massive massive achievement just to to, to be able to do everything to to get to that point where you're even in contention to to win the tour. Once you've won the Tour de France, 
life changes for you. You try your hardest not to change yourself as, as, a, as a person. I mean, you don't feel any different. You're like, okay, I've, I've just won a bike race. Yeah. I'm still the same person. But everything around you changes. It's, it's tough for, for a, young, any, uh, any, a young athlete. I mean, you're not trained to deal. You're trained to, to ride your bike. You're not trained to deal with everything else that comes your way in terms of media, commercial opportunities. People, everyone wants a bit of you. Um, and that that can be quite a lifestyle change for a lot of people. And I think I think that's been a big reason why a lot of Tour de France winners will come out, win the Tour de France, and find it very difficult to back it up again the, the year after. Because that focus that it takes to be able to, to take on a Tour de France and commitment, it can very easily get blurred, I guess, with, with all, all, all the other commitments that come with being a, a Tour de France winner. Um, and I think one thing that um, the people around me, um, most notably, I think my wife, Michelle, she was incredibly good at keeping me grounded. Um, yeah. I, I still had to do my own laundry and everything at home. I was, I was not this Tour de France champion there. I was just same old, same old. And um, I think she kept me very grounded, um, kept me very um, on track uh, with, yeah, done that now, straight on to the next thing, what's next? And uh, that, that's almost how it felt for me for that, that whole period where I was winning, I guess, from 2000 and, uh, I guess, 2011, um, all the way through to 2018 when I, when I won the last Grand Tour. It was very much, okay, finish that Grand Tour, what's next? And it was... Not really living in the moment, not really enjoying the victories, I guess. That's what it takes when if 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 you want to keep keep going at it like that. One thing that comes with success also comes the haters. You know, like especially in Australia, we love the underdog. You know, it's easy to cheer for the underdog. And when you're on the top, you know, I can imagine can only imagine what it was like because people just want to pick you apart. You know, look even you know, you've got the crowds, you've got people picking, you know, you can't descend, you can't ride cobbles. Then you've got guys like me, and you'll understand this too when you retire, people want you to be controversial, you know? And I went out on the limb and said, look, Fremi, you need to retire, you know, because people are looking for you to say something different. I guess, how have you been out of sort of, one thing I've I'd really admired about you was if there's something broken or weak, you fix it. Whether it's descending, whether it's riding cobbles, I'll just attack on the cobbles. If people don't think I can ride cobbles. I'll just keep riding for more years to shut Mitch up, you know? Um, I'll just descend. I'll invent a new way to descend that the UCI have to eventually ban because it's so fast. <laughs> You're meticulous with your training. I know this because I've spoken to Daryl Impey about this. He said, I don't know if I can train with this guy anymore. It's just so hard, you know? It just gets dials in. So this way about it, how's it been in this sort of washing machine of people who want to support you but also going up a mountain with people yelling in your face stuff you don't want to hear yeah i mean it, it certainly hasn't been easy over the years there's there's been times and i think i mean i don't like to talk about this that much but it's that whole era of lance armstrong i guess yeah um and the image that that brought to cycling sure there were other winners after the tour de france between myself and armstrong but there was no one who was backing it up year after year after year so when i started doing that again Everyone thought, right, here we go. This is mm. Lance 2.0. Like mm. he's, uh, and then certainly the French were painting me in that way. Uh, the French commentators were. And so 
we were going out there on the roads of the Tour de France and getting serious abuse every day. I mean, we didn't actually even publicize it at the time because we didn't want to draw attention to it or, or turn it into a bigger bigger deal than it, than it was. But um, we were getting punched almost on a daily basis on the bikes, getting spat at, getting urine thrown at us. Um, one, one, day in, one, one day in particular, I did say something actually. I, was, I had, it, it was clearly urine. <laughs> um, someone, uh, we were coming along um, and the, you could see this guy, it was, I could see this guy sort of edging into the road and smiling ready and this guy had a different look about him. Yeah. And as we got there, threw this kind of cup at us and it actually hit most of my shoulder and hit Luke Rowe in the face. Oh, and he would have lost it. <laughs> and you could smell it, it. Yeah, it wasn't beer, it was it was urine. And I was like, okay, I got to finish that day. And I was like, listen guys, this is it's this is much. sport, come on. This is this is not on, this is too much. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would get punched in the ribs quite often. Uh, teammates would do their jobs, pull off, they'd get punched, riding slowly up to the finish, get get abused by fans. It was it was it was pretty rough, but at the same time, what can you do? I mean, you're like uh, you you you're trying to race to the best of your ability. Uh, you you can't prove a negative and be like, listen, I invite all of you to come mm. to my house and see that I'm not doing anything yeah. dodgy. Just got to trust the process. At the end of the day, like I think personally, I feel like the the huge turnaround in the sport, and maybe you can confirm this as well, is when they brought in the biological passport, mm. and I think. That uh, and and Adam system where we literally have to check in every single day of our lives where we are and where we can be tested every single day. I think that was a huge turning point in 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 the image of the sport. And I've certainly found um, these last years, uh, last three four years, that it's becoming less and less of a uh, an issue in our sport. I, I, it, in terms of the image and the perception from from the public, so I, I think things are moving in the right direction. It's taken a good, good decade to kind of get through that point, but uh, yeah, it, it hasn't been easy at times. And that's that's when I guess leaning leaning on a, a good uh, support structure around you really helps. Good teammates, you all. Sometimes as a team, it, it really brought us closer together because yeah. it, it really makes you feel like right, we're all under attack here from from all sides. We're just going to stick it to them, and it it kind of makes the bond between you even better. I mean, can remember the two thousand? I think it was the two thousand seventeen or eighteen Tour de France start. Standing on the presentation in front of a, a predominantly French crowd uh, at the presentation of the Tour de France day one, it's normally really exciting. It's a great feeling, great atmosphere to be there with so many people. We stood there and we had it like a few thousand people booing at us. Jeez. Uh, and, and sort of whistling in a disrespectful way that it's 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 a French thing they they whistle when they yeah. don't like people and um, like what's what's in store for us this tour this is how we're starting we all just stood there I guess with big smiles on our faces and just like right boys this is it us against them kind of thing um, and it's uh, yeah it's 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 not easy at times um, and three weeks of it it does get it does get a lot. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you just got to kind of just go back to focusing on on the process of okay, right? And just got to go through the motions of everything that you do on it normally, and just try and get try and just block everything else out. So many young guys, um, and even not even young guys. I know a lot of people who are just uh, you know general cyclists, but long a lot of young riders 
and guys in the peloton are inspired by what you do look up to you the way what you just spoke about that you're a leader through all that controversy but also the way you ride who inspires you who are you in awe of yeah i mean it's i find that question really hard to to answer because i've never really had massive sporting idols when i was a teenager i looked up to to one or two of the current professionals at that time they went down for doping a few years later and i kind of after that i, I almost stopped looking up to people i was just like all right i'm just going to do this my way uh, do the best i can do and i'm not really going to look up to uh look up to people that much what about in the peloton now like there's guys that i am actually in awe of when i'm racing them and you're in the same race and they're doing something you're just like that's just like being in a race with you and like i said the finestra stage as much as i hated that because i almost got eliminated <laughs> i just could not believe what you did so because you were at the same fatigue and we're we're just human beings we're like i know like how could this guy be that much better you know this is insane it was just insane so i just that sort of like in, you know that that feeling no oh, cheers mate thank you yeah, yeah, well, I, appreciate you know I, mean? I appreciate that <laughs> coming from another pro it's uh, pretty cool hearing that sometimes but yeah i mean uh, certainly these last few years I've, I've had a lot of respect for for certainly some of the old athletes yeah. out there um and guys still performing um into their 40s because you know yourself like more how much it takes to be like we just spoke about this whole podcast so to just do it in and out for 20 years and still live a life so that it does you have that that correlation that respect don't you very much so very much so finally mate the last thing i want to sort of ask you is about it's not in cycling now and i did hear this when i was doing a little bit of research with you is spear fishing mate we've got like a thing in common you love going spearing i couldn't believe it tell me about your love for spear fishing yeah i mean that's uh i guess goes goes back to having grown up in kenya as well um it would always go down to go down to the beach once a year at least with the family and um that was always a big thing down there uh get get a locally made it didn't really look like a a gun or a spear gun it was kind of a piece of stick with an elastic big elastic oh, on it and, spear, yeah right um and um yeah so that, that's i guess where it started out as a kid and now living down in the south of france uh monaco i, I tend to try and get out there as well um, deep water or in, on on the reef just sort of down um, and down. mainly mainly around the reef yeah not on the reef not not super deep but in in general i just love i love being on the water i find uh the on and around water it's calming for me i feel like that's uh that's my meditation if you like just being uh being being in the sea i've now i've got two 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 young kids as well they they love it as well so any any opportunity i get i'm, I'm in the water with them was it when you were around the water that you were chased by a hippo? How did that all come about? I know that's definitely come from MP as well, but yeah. Um, fishing. Uh, <laughs> An actual hippo chase you? Fishing as a teenager in the Maasai Mara, on the border of the Maasai Mara um, Reserve in Kenya. I'd thrown a fishing line in into this uh, very muddy water. And I don't know if you've seen the stuff on National Geographic of the wildebeest crossing this big river and the crocodile sort of uh yeah. take taking them that's it's that river basically so i was, I was fishing in there I, I thought i was on quite a safe point where uh, there's a good drop off into the water nothing can really get me because uh because there's a good little uh i was elevated when slightly. you say nothing can get me what were you thinking that like, like yeah a, a hippo or, or, a, or a croc um but 
I had I had about a meter and into deep water, so I was like, yeah, nothing can get me here. There's a bit of a beach off to the side here where a, something could come out, but I'll, I'll see it and there's time for me to get going. I'm sitting there fishing and this, this thing comes up, uh, the hippo comes up close to where I had my float. Uh, and I was like, oh, oh, that gave me a bit of a fright. They're like, where did that come from? Uh, he went back down again, disappeared. Must have been three or four minutes later. I just hear this swirling water sound. I look to my right and the thing's come out up the beach, like running at me with his mouth open, full charge. Far out. And these things, these things can go like 40k an hour. <laughs> uh, they, they can, they can run faster than a human. I, I just dropped everything, dropped everything, uh, ran for my life up this, uh, up this, basically up this embankment of the riverbed. It, it got uh, pretty steep and I just got up there as fast as I could and just grabbed onto like a uh, tree root. Far out. Uh, and, and got as high as I could. Hippo followed me and got to maybe a couple meters below me, figured out it, it couldn't come any further, sort of did a few circles and then got back in the river and I was just there hanging on for life, like looking looking down at this thing because they, they, they kill a fair few people in, in Africa. They're, they're one of the, the, the most How do they dangerous. kill people? They just grab them with their mouth. Oh, they're, they're, they're vicious, vicious. I mean, they, especially if they've got uh, young around, um, they're, they're, they're very territorial, they're very defensive, um, the, the mothers are uh, yeah, protective of their children and uh, they don't like people fishing in their, in, their, in their river. Chris, thank you very much for talking to me today mate, it's been great to catch up with you. Awesome, thanks guys, thanks, thanks a lot. Well, the legend, Chris Froome, what did you guys think? Did you find some stuff out about him that you didn't already know? I got a few tidbits of information from one of his good friends, Daryl Impey, and I tried to spice up the interview as well, but he was such a pro. He told those stories. They were great stories. I love talking to him. As I've already said, I love talking to him in person. Big thanks goes out to Meg behind the scenes, who's doing all the nuts and bolts for Life in the Pelts on this year. Will Jones, who's piecing these episodes together. Thanks, Will. And of course, you guys for listening. I love your feedback and I love hearing from you. I hope you guys have enjoyed the season so far. We're up and rolling and we've got some exciting podcasts coming up. I've changed the format of Talking Loof this year. There's going to be 12 Talking Loofs, one a month. So we're going to go right into Christmas and I want to spice them up. Next week, we've got an episode... Matthew Goss. So hang in for that one next week. We've got a Talking Wolf coming for you. And until then, guys, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.